Hi, I'm Taylor Carmen. I'm a professor of philosophy at Barnard College, Columbia University, working on European philosophy of mostly the 20th century. I'm Eric Kaplan. I'm a writer currently on strike, and I have a PhD in philosophy. And you are a person listening to Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them. And it's a podcast in which we pose terrifying and unsettling questions and reflect on them and think about them and talk about them and possibly get to a point of, if not exactly less anxiety, a kind of transformed anxiety, which involves courage and equanimity, having achieved maybe a little insight and wisdom. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we're aiming for here. That's what we're shooting for. And our terrifying question, if I may say so, is what comes after monotheism? What comes after monotheism? We were kicking this question around because, Taylor, you recommended to me an author uh, who I'd never heard of before, an Egyptologist named Jan Osman. Yeah. And he seems like an awfully philosophical Egyptologist. Exactly. That's right. Yep. But now, yep. why is that? Like, he's not just saying, and then in the reign of Thutmose VIII, uh, Stella, <laughs> you know, a pyramid was constructed. Uh, like, why? Wh what's yeah. his deal? Well, he's asking a very philosophical question, and that is, what is monotheism? What does the word mean, or rather, what are we referring to when we're talking about it? It doesn't just have to do with the number of gods. It's something more to do with what he calls the mosaic distinction, which is the distinction between true religion and false religion, which means idol worship and superstition and paganism. And another important part of his work that's very philosophical is that he's interested in the cultural memory or what you might call the reception history of monotheism. That is what it became in history and how it shaped the historical tradition that remembers it as a beginning. Right, right. And he does, a, I think, a very genius thing, which is to say, if we're curious about what monotheism is, let's look at what things were like before there was monotheism. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and and the fascinating thing, just I want to put it all on the table, yeah. sort of like, so I make sure I got it Good. right and I don't forget mm -hmm. it. But I think monotheism, amongst other things, it affects how we see ourselves. Mm -hmm. It affects how we see truth. Mm -hmm. It affects how we see conflicts with other people. And it affects sort of... Um, the technologies that we use to keep track of our commitments to ourselves and other people. So he says that monotheism only occurs in situations where there is a, a canon of writing where we've decided this is the sacred scripture and it will not be added to or subtracted from. That's right. And the usual contrast, of course, with monotheism is polytheism. But he's in a number of places said that he thinks that these terms actually aren't really quite the right ones, because they imply that the difference between these earlier ancient religions that involved multiple deities and the emerging sort of single, at least single primary deity, Yahweh. Or the highway. Or, <laughs> exactly right. Um, the difference between these kinds of traditions, even though it's enormous, is not the difference between believing in a bunch of gods and one single god. It, because, in fact, the Greeks, who had plenty of gods, would say god, and they meant Zeus. So they often had one primary god who was just god, even though there's lots of gods. And in the so-called monotheistic traditions, there's actually plenty of gods floating around. I mean, in Exodus, Yahweh says you'll have no other gods before me. And he doesn't mean they don't exist. He means don't worship them. Right. He couldn't mean they don't exist, or it would be a commandment it would be impossible to break. <laughs> yes, that's right. If there right. were no other gods, right. you wouldn't need to tell people. Now, maybe some people will think that's a little bit of a linguistic trick, that you should not take something which 
is not a god and mistakenly view it as a god, but clearly there's some kind of move going on here. And monotheism, which is sometimes called monolatry, to make it different from idolatry, uh-huh. um, right. and also many quote-unquote polytheists in India and late antiquity are okay with saying all the different gods are aspects of one divine reality. Yeah. Um, ah, and the monotheist is not okay with that. He's not okay with saying, right. you know, Baal is cool. Right. Baal is just another aspect of the reality that we worship as the Lord. That's sort of very much not cool. There's definitely a way in which polytheism, so-called, is a kind of pluralism, and monotheism is a kind of monism. Okay. <laughs> so you still got so plural and mono in some form or other. And you're right that some uh, readings, some ways of understanding the Ten Commandments thing, have no other gods before me, is just that there aren't any, so don't act as if there are, because it's often uh-huh. taken to be part of the same commandment as you'll have no graven images. Um, right. But that the problem is that that's actually not consistently what goes on in Exodus, because when Moses addresses Yahweh, he says to him, who among the gods is as great as you? Right. So there's clear acknowledgement of other gods. And when they do the tricks, you know, turning the staff into a snake, the Egyptian priests have their own sort of magic tricks that are going on. And it looks like they've got their gods. And so-called monotheism in the Hebrew tradition comes out of a background in which it's clear there's multiple gods, and this god was the god of the Hebrews, but there were other gods for other peoples. It was a tribal god right. in a polytheistic world, in that sense of polytheism. But right, because he's jealous. Exactly, right. yes, exactly, and he shouldn't have to be if there aren't any other gods. If there's no other yeah. gods to be stepping out yeah. on him with. exactly. So if you're just counting up the number of gods, it's pretty clear that the theology in Exodus, for example, is polytheistic, and yet... That's the source of monotheism, leaving aside stuff that was going on in Egypt before it, which we can talk about in a minute, because there was a kind of monotheism in Egypt before this. Pharaoh Akhenaten. Akhenaten. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, right? exactly. But that Egyptian tradition died out and then was forgotten for many, many centuries, whereas it was the Mosaic and Hebrew kind of monotheism that kept gaining momentum and becoming culturally significant in retrospect. Unless you think, as Sigmund Freud did that Moses was Akhenaten, or less extremely, that the story of Moses is placed at the time of this Amarna revolution as a sort of dim cultural memory of the start of monotheism. This is so fascinating. Before we jump into that, yeah, it is is super fascinating. Before we jump into it, I do want to say that the Danish thinker Kierkegaard said, it's probably a mistake to view faith in God as something like a belief in an object. Mm -hmm. And that also has to do with how we should interpret this question of how many gods there are counting them up. Because on one construction, this is a remarkably stupid thing to worry about, (laughs) because you'd say, how many things is a deck of cards? Uh Well, it's 52 cards. It's one deck. Mm -hmm. It's many multiples of Avogadro's number of molecules. Mm. So why would anyone get bent out of shape about whether a deck of cards is one? Yeah. And if if that's true, a fortiori, it's true about the universe or everything. How many yeah. things is or the, the divine reality? So, I, as I understand Kierkegaard, he's saying it's not about your sort of abstract assent to the principle of how many things there are. 
It's about, is there one thing you're ready to bet your life on? Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Do you think that's a fair paraphrase? I think that's right. That's certainly Kierkegaard's idea. Yeah. And that hooks in with Osman, yeah. because what he says is the important the, the important innovation of Moses and, and possibly Akhenaten, but certainly Moses, and all the religions that come from Moses, Christianity and Islam mm -hmm. being the biggest ones, mm -hmm. is that you shall have no other gods. Mm -hmm. You shall make your bet on one thing, yeah. and one thing only, and nothing will make you move your chips to something else. That's right. Um, and that's politically very powerful, particularly if you're resisting, as I guess the kingdom of Judea was resisting the uh, empire of Assyria, which is if you say, I basically want to be loyal to my traditions and my customs, uh, the stronger adversary can always raise the stakes uh -huh. because they've got more stuff. Right. But if you say nothing will ever, ever, ever cause me to not be loyal to whatever it is I'm loyal to, let's say, you know, justice yeah. or, or um, then you're very difficult to negotiate with in a good way, <laughs> See, in a good way and a bad way, yeah, right? that's right. And I think it also psychologically, in a sense, makes it easier for you to negotiate with yourself. Mm. Like if you've decided I'm taking my bet on one thing and it's my ride or die, mm -hmm. then a certain kind of calmness might descend upon you or integration, because nothing is going to dissuade you. Mm. No job offer, no deliciously seductive experience. Nothing will move you, no threat. And you'll be like, okay, like the tree standing by the water, I shall not be moved. Right. And that seems to me to be the kind of um, political, psychological, and metaphysical grab bag or innovation that Osman calls monotheism. Interesting. And you're right that Kierkegaard has this phrase, I think it's even a title, purity of heart is to will one thing. Yeah. So it's that resolute, what would later be called resolute, authentic, focused, existential commitment. That's interesting. Is that part of Osman's story? I think you're right. I hadn't thought of it that way, he to be says honest. It's, yeah. it's no other gods yeah. is really the statement. Although sometimes he also says that the, the mosaic distinction is the idea that... Um, like there's true and false in matters of religion. That's exactly right. But I also think it's like there's true and false, and it's super important that you're on the right side of that. Yes. Like the most important thing. Here's here's where I think there may be a distinction to draw between. Okay. By the time we get to Kierkegaard, it's a totally individual, personal commitment of choice. And there's a kind of truth in that. I mean, Kierkegaard says truth is subjectivity, mm -hmm. and he means the personal character of uh, this existential undertaking of belief or faith. The rise of monotheism for Asman doesn't have to do with a number of gods. It has to do with this new distinction he calls the mosaic distinction between true religion and false religion. And monotheism is that is drawing that distinction. And then that's why the, there's other stuff in Exodus, which is very relevant to the rise of monotheism, which is the rejection of idolatry, as you were saying before, the golden calf, the worshiping the golden calf. The idea is all that is nonsense. It's false religion. It's fake. And there's a true religion, a right religion. And that's why you had better be on this side, because all the other stuff really is just appearance and uh, and it is associated with Egypt. All this Egyptian idol worship, that's false and wrong. 
and the one God is the true God. Right. So it's not that there's one God rather than many. It's that there's the true God, and then there's all these false gods, which are really nothing. And he quotes a couple of horrifying passages from Deuteronomy mm -hmm. to great effect. One of them is that if you go up against a city, like this is supposedly instructions from God to the Israelites. If you go up against a city that's far away, you know, you should do the normal stuff. You should give them the opportunity to surrender and be enslaved. And if they say no, you should besiege them. And if you win, then you kill all the men and you enslave the children and women. Mm. Uh, and you steal all their stuff. You take booty. Yeah. So that's the nice way of doing it in the ancient <laughs> world. But if they turn out to be idolaters, uh -huh. if they're like Moabites mm -hmm. or Canaanites, yeah. then you perform a genocidal extermination of everybody mm -hmm. and uh, you burn all their stuff and kill all their animals and you never build a community there ever again. And that's also true if these people are uh, backsliding Israelites. Yeah. Uh. And there's this famous story of um, Phineas, um, who God was very upset that the children of Israelites were going to a barbecue of, I think, the Moabites. And because a barbecue in the ancient world was always a religious ceremony, you never had meat ah, just for because yes. you'd like some meat. It was always a religious ceremony, right? And it also involved a certain amount of um, lovemaking mm. between the Israelites mm -hmm. and the Moabites and or Moabites. <laughs> and um, God was so mad about this because he's a jealous God that he killed I don't know 144,000 people with the plague. And then Phineas, uh, a priest, picked up a spear. And while an Israelite guy was having sex with a Moabitish woman in a tent, he ran them through with a single stroke of his spear. And this made God so happy mm. with his zealous behavior that he called off the plague. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So, so yeah. in other words, it's, <laughs> it's pretty horrible. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's hard to say it's just all good or all bad because we're in a culture created by this, but it's got some pretty bad aspects and seems terribly dangerous in a world where uh you know people have nuclear bombs yeah. you know and if they really think you know you should exterminate anybody who doesn't share your view about god they can't yeah i mean i don't think asman thinks that these emerging monotheistic traditions had any monopoly on violence or massacres or wars because that was going on all the time on all sides no he doesn't think so that. you can you can find atrocities on all He's sides careful not to say that but it's definitely true that he thinks that there's a new kind of intolerance that emerges with monotheism precisely because you cannot tolerate these false religions. They're false. They're fake. They're no good. Whereas in the so-called polytheistic traditions, the coordination of one system of deities with another system of deities was like a translation guide from one language to another. Right. And it right. functioned to establish a kind of system of communication. So the way you could understand another group was to say, okay, you're God of the harvest. That's like our God of the harvest. And the God you call this of that is like our God of such and such. And by comparing them and aligning them, you're actually establishing a system of communication and interaction. But with monotheism, you shut that down completely because there's nothing comparable to the one true God among all these other sort of fake gods that you think are running around the world. So now he, he introduces a technical term just to get away from saying polytheism and monotheism, which is the primary religions and the secondary religions. The secondary religions are essentially reactive to the primary religions. They're reactive because they're saying all that stuff you guys believe and worship is nonsense and it has to be erased 
and eliminated in favor of the one true religion. And it becomes more increasingly mono, as it were, increasingly monistic and intolerant as you go from the Hebrew tradition to Christianity, and then from Catholicism to Protestantism, and before that to Islam, and so on. So there is a tendency here um, that I think he thinks is very dangerous and it's not that the polytheistic world was some kind of paradise of toleration and happiness and peace, not at all, but there was different kinds of violence made possible by different kinds of religious ideologies. But this one is particularly dangerous because it's so monolithic. And it also, it's a violence that we tend to turn inwards against ourselves mm -hmm. too, right? Mm -hmm. Like we tend to say, if I'm having a belief or a desire and experience it's either a godly one or a bad one. So, mm, so we sort easy. of create yeah. a kind of internal violence too if we walk in this path. Um, but w yeah. one thing I do want to bring up is like, supposing our listeners are like, well, I don't believe in any kind of God. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in the God of the Bible or Marduk or Aphrodite. So I'm good. I've successfully transcended this monotheism stuff, and I can listen to a different podcast because I know the <laughs> moral of this yeah. one. There aren't any gods. Yeah, we go from, from many to one to zero. Right. And if you're an atheist, you think, and that's the correct reading of the number of gods on the number of God meter, zero, Yeah, done. Is that wrong? Was it Whitehead's definition of Unitarianism? It's the thesis that there is at most one God? Oh, it, that's something like that. And I also think um, this was a joke about Santayana, that he believed in no God, but his mother was Mary. <laughs> right, exactly. So maybe after monotheism, we just get atheism, and you've got, you've got it all the way down to zero, and then we're done. Yes. Let's hold that thought and come back to this question. What comes after, if anything, comes after monotheism? Okay, that was a good break. That was a smashing first segment, I think. I'm proud of it. <laughs> yeah, let's catch our breath and come back to this question that looks like we've got from a whole lot of gods to fewer gods, and more importantly for Jan Asman, the German Egyptologist whose work we're talking about today, what he calls the mosaic distinction between truth and falsity in religion. There's true religion and false religion. This was an idea that was never part of the so-called polytheistic world. If you read Homer, you don't get that idea that some religions are... In fact, the word religion, I mean, there's a whole other topic we could have, like, what is religion? Because this is a fairly recent term um, that didn't really exist in ancient Greek or Egyptian or anything like that, what we call religion. Or ancient Judaism, yeah, for that matter. Right, exactly. Religion, what we call religion, was so totally baked into the rest of the culture that it wasn't something that people used to distinguish as its own thing, uh, separate right, from right. art and society and the state and literature and philosophy. And by the way, that is one of the cool things that the mosaic distinction lets you do, yeah. is that you can say... Yes, the Roman Empire has great armies and beautiful works of art and fabulous roads, but it's wrong. I reject it in total. Yeah. And the Romans are like, how, how could you? What about the road stuff? And they're like, yeah. no, it's just not good enough because it's false religion and there's a true religion. And I don't care if I'm living in some hovel in Judea and I don't have a giant marble statue of a god or a working transportation system. I'm right and you're wrong. 
And it's kind of cool to have that in your back pocket if the Romans are coming to town, because otherwise they will definitely win. And there's some evidence that the early Christians who were being persecuted by the Romans, and I'd just say as a footnote, Christianity has made a big point about martyrdom and persecution and left the impression that this was a massive, wide-scale operation. It's much smaller than people suppose it was. People were persecuted, mm-hmm. but it wasn't the kind of um, rounding up millions of people and throwing them to the lions. And the Romans were accusing the Christians not of some sort of religious or thought crime, but of a civil crime, right. which is if you're going to be part of this society, well, of course you need to make an a obeisance to the emperor. Exactly. He's sort of in charge of everything. Because he's God. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then Julian the Apostate did not say that Christians must lose all their jobs. Right. But he did say if you're a Christian, you can't be teaching young people and you can't teach law because part of teaching young people involves teaching them the stories of the gods. And you guys think that's all nonsense. So you shouldn't even want to get the job as a teacher because you're teaching something that you don't believe. But it's interesting that Julian the Apostate was not like Mm -hmm. these foolish cultists. I mean, he did believe they were foolish cultists must be purged from the ranks of my administration. No, he had very specific reasons for where Christians cannot work. Yeah. And on the other side, once Constantine became converted to Christianity and was the first emperor to be officially Christian, it's not that all the other religions were outlawed and Christianity became the law. But as you say, these were kind of civil commitments. And so you could get in trouble for being Christian because you weren't perceived to be loyal to the emperor. And Mm -hmm. it was easy to avoid getting killed. All you had to do was say, okay, okay, the emperor is God, whatever you say, and that would be fine. But the Christians Mm -hmm. refused to do it. Many did. And there's a wonderful text of Pliny the Younger, who was an official in charge of arresting Christians and figuring out what to do with them. And he writes this letter back to his superior saying, I don't know what to do with these people because I don't understand why they're resisting. And I know that what I'm supposed to do is if they completely resist and refuse to pour a libation to the to the emperor. Pour out one to the homies. Yeah, yeah, if they just completely refuse to do that, and if they refuse to step on an icon, you know, Christian icon with their foot, then eventually you have to kill them. But I don't know why they're resisting, and it, it made no sense. So there was a kind of focused, again, monotheistic commitment in early Christianity that was kind of incomprehensible to the Romans, precisely because it didn't look to them like there was this separate thing called religion that you could carve off from all the rest of your civic duties right, or political right, right, commitments. Right. So these these secondary religions are reactive to the primary religions because they're shutting off communication. They are closing down this system of communication by coordinating one theological system with another and they are distinguishing true from false. Now, what comes after monotheism is our question. And I guess we have to think a little bit about whether monotheism is at its end. I think there's a plausible case to be made, at least on the cultural historical level, that it is winding down or gone. I don't know what you think about this. Well, I I want to deal with the question of... Mm -hmm. Are scientific materialists monotheists or not? Because I think many of our listeners will say, yeah, it's winding down. Uh Uh Only dopey people believe if you want to, you know, achieve something in your life, you should go and pray in a church. Uh, And in fact, if you want to get your life on track, you should do science. And they would say, therefore, they're not monotheists. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
But what do you think? Well, what I think is this. I do think that some major transformation has happened in the last 400 years or so, Mm -hmm. which took us from, broadly speaking, a theological, religious, at least in European cultures, monotheistic Christian religious culture to something sort of post-theistic. I think it emerged Mm. with the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment and increasingly in the 19th century. And when Nietzsche said God is dead, I think he was on to something that was really happening. And the way I see it, the fact that belief in God could have become just a matter of personal opinion, which is what it seems to me to be now. People basically regard it as everybody has to make up their own mind, but there's no consensus about it in the way there was 500 years ago. And for the Romans, their own worshiping practices, their religious practices, seemed to them so self-evident that they couldn't understand why Christians would reject them. And in the height of Christian culture in the Middle Ages or the early modern period, acceptance that we're creatures of God and God created the world and Jesus died for your sins and you pray and hope for salvation in another life, all of that was so baked into their way of thinking that it was almost impossible to think your way out of it. But it has happened that people think their way out of it. So we're in a different stage. So I'm surprised because I I thought you were going to say that the atheist materialist is still a monotheist because he believes there is one story. Well, I sort of do. Any, yeah. Anyone who doesn't embrace that story is wandering in darkness. Yeah. So Right. So I, I kind of do believe that. Right. You do exactly. believe that. Okay. Well, exactly right. But what I think well, is... Well, explain why you believe yeah. that. Because I think for yeah. many people in the audience, there, that's going to be like a big takeaway, <laughs> a takeaway or a sticking point. We're right. Um, you have to draw a distinction so that this can sound plausible. Because there's one way of presenting this idea, I think, which is... Um, it sounds like a non-starter to say, ah, well, the most apparently atheistic, materialist, scientistic, science lover, despiser of religion is really just uh, a monotheist. That sounds really hard to believe. And in a way, it's it's not quite right, because uh-huh. it's not as if Richard Dawkins or Pinker or whoever uh, really do believe in God. Um, So again, if you go back to the number of gods they believe in, it'll be zero. So if you think monotheism is, again, monotheism and polytheism are about Mm -hmm. how many gods do you think exist, then sure, there's plenty of people who think the number is zero, and those are called atheists. But if you take on Jan Osman's idea that what was distinctive about monotheism was this insistence on the sharp distinction between true and false— then I think there's a case to be made, and I think this is what Nietzsche thought, that science had taken over the drawing of that distinction with authority, that with severity we say these things exist and these things don't, and there's one true story about the world and all the rest is fake. And in fact, the emergence of, call it scientific atheism or atheistic scientism or whatever, Mm. um, it looks like it follows right in the path of this secondary religion, monotheistic distinction, because it's rejecting all religion as idolatry. It's rejecting all religion as superstition and fakery and belief in false stories and false pictures of the world and one truth. And the one truth is the scientific truth, the scientific image of the world. And a lot of people are passionately, dogmatically, intolerantly committed to that one picture of the world at the dispense of religion as a whole, so-called, in exactly the same way as monotheism, so-called, was intolerant of polytheistic or primary religions, 
uh, which they rejected in this very same way by saying that's false and this is true. So I think Asman has put his finger on a, the really deep distinction that's going on, which is the, call it the tyranny of truth, uh-huh. or the tyranny of the, the distinction between the true and the false. My view is that that is not slowing down at all. Mm-hmm. And if anything, it's accelerating. So the number of gods that exist is almost just um, you know a red herring. What matters is this intolerance of falsity or intolerance of any kind of blurring of the distinction between the true and the false. So in that way, rhetorically, you could say, yeah, the scientific atheists are in a way monotheists, but I think that's shorthand for saying they are dogmatists about the superiority of truth over against the false, and they vilify the false, they make the false the enemy and dangerous, and it needs to be stamped out, and there's, a, there's an intolerance built into the drawing of that distinction. So that's what I think Asman is worried uh-huh. about. I think he's following Nietzsche in that way because Nietzsche was, you know, Nietzsche wasn't just an atheist. Nietzsche was a pluralist. And what he didn't like about Christianity was not that it believed in fairy tales about deities because, you know, the Greeks had that and that was fine. What, what he didn't like about Christianity was the dogmatism, the intolerance of plural interpretations, multiple conceptions of reality, which are often in conflict and competing and which you might not ever be able to resolve. Was Nietzsche a blind man and the elephant guy? You know the story of the blind man and the elephant, that they, uh-huh. the blind men come across the elephant and one of them grabs his tusk yeah. and says the elephant is very like a spear. Yeah. And one of them grabs his trunk and says the elephant is very like a snake. Uh-huh. And one of them puts his hand up against the elephant's side and says the elephant is very like a wall. And the truth is, they're all right. Because the elephant is like all of these things, but none of them can get a good look at him because they're visually disabled. Is that would Nietzsche be down with that? Maybe. Sometimes Nietzsche says things that sound that way, like that there are lots of truths. Mm-hmm. But the, the reason that's maybe a dangerous analogy is because that story might suggest that there is one big picture, which is the truth, and they've all just got... Well, there's one big elephant. Yeah, I know, but I don't think Nietzsche thought that. So there's no elephant. Well, what I, yeah, what, so the problem is the one big elephant, which you might think if you could put these stories together in the right way and get the kind of three-dimensional view, you would see they've all got true parts of the one big picture, which is really the one story about reality. Nietzsche, I don't think, was that much of a as so-called monist. Right. Yeah, it depends if you imagine the end of the blind man of the elephant story is that and then they learn to see and they see oh it was an elephant yeah which i'm not sure that the author of that parable whoever that was i believe it was indian thought that i mean it's it's interesting to me that there are two schools of thought about truth in indian philosophy one of them is a madhyamaka position uh they were a group of buddhist philosophers stemming from nagarjuna and they thought that all statements you can make about reality are false. Mm-hmm. So that God exists is false, that God does not exist is false, that God neither exists nor doesn't exist is false, that God exists and it doesn't exist, that's false. And then there were the Jains, and they thought that everything you can say about reality is true. Mm. That God exists is true, that God doesn't exist is true, that God both exists and doesn't exist is true, and that God neither exists and does not exist is true also true. Now, I don't know why that matters. I suspect it doesn't. But mm. both of them oh, interesting. De- deny the mosaic distinction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. And it's very hard to pin Nietzsche down on this point because he says different things in different places. Mm-hmm. So sometimes Nietzsche will say, all our beliefs are false. 
And it's what people have called an error theory. Anytime you want to say Mm -hmm. anything about value, what's true or important or whatever, Mm -hmm. you're wrong and it's false. There's other times when he sounds like what I've called a pluralist, which is just there's a whole lot of truths. And um, there's just so many that there's no one truth because you won't be able to reconcile all the truths. They will be in some kind of tension. I don't know that he was ever cared enough to worry about or say that they could be formally contradictory and still both Mm -hmm. true. I don't think he really worried about that. But it's clearer that there are plenty of competing truths that's just about impossible to have both of them, even if they don't logically contradict each other, that you have to choose one or the other. Now, Nietzsche thought of the multiplicity of interpretations of the world as like an ongoing kind of battle or contest, and he thought that's just how it will always be. There's never going to be a happy reconciliation where everybody sees the whole elephant, Mm -hmm. because every one of these descriptions of the world is going to come along with value commitments that potentially put you in conflict with other perspectives, and he thought that was great. Mm -hmm. So he thought that was fine. So it's fine if among these multiple religions, you know, that they cause conflict as much as they bring about agreement and reconciliation. Nietzsche was a kind of, I don't know what to call him, I mean, maybe an anarchist, Um, Mm -hmm. but he didn't like the uh, yeah the monolithic aspiration of monotheism, which he saw reflected in modern science. So there's m- many texts in maybe his later writings where he's basically launching the same attack against science he launched against Christianity for the same reasons because it was they had this metaphysical conception of the one true picture of everything. That's what he really didn't like, apart from right. all the morality of Christianity that he didn't like. Right. But in a way, some of that morality comes through in. Uh, again, this dogmatic, scientific view of the world for some of the same reasons. By the way, I, I read an interesting chapter in uh, in Osman's book about Moses and Akhenaten, where he he starts to engage with a very, uh, in my mind, um, evil uh, Nazi philosopher named Schmidt. Mm-hmm. And Schmidt says, everything is politics. Yeah. And the reason why everything is politics is because in what he calls the, the, Ernst, the Ernstfall, the case of ultimate seriousness, you need to decide which side you're on. Mm-hmm. And that means ultimately this world is made up of friends and of enemies. And anything you say about beauty or tolerance or or cooperation doesn't really matter because at some point it's going to be us versus them. And you better be on our side and not on their side. And what Osman says I think is interesting is... Schmidt has noticed a true thing. Mm. The true thing is that if you look at everything from the point of view of the most serious case, people may, in fact, fall into this kind of um, us versus them thinking. But his conclusion is, let's not do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Let's avoid that. In fact, if we're going to be an enemy of anything, let's be an enemy of enmity. You know, let's hate hatred, but otherwise not hate human beings. Let's fight against this us versus them thinking. And I found that. Yeah. I love that. And I think he's not the <laughs> I only. really like that. He's not the only one who has leveled that objection against Schmidt. Um, I was going to say a second ago, Schmidt had clearly never heard of frenemies. So that's, you know, it's true. maybe he needed an it's update Schmidt on that. Schmidt had not heard of frenemies. But, but that's um, a jokey way of saying something which is kind of serious and true, which is that the problem with Schmidt's view that it's all friends and enemies, you'd have to distinguish your friends and enemies, and that's all politics, and you never get away from that, is that it's a clearly a normative yeah. position he's taken, and yet he claims that it's a, just a description, and it's not just right. a description. I'll, I'll say another problem I have with Schmidt's view, and with contemporary people in American politics who who are essentially Schmidtians, and, and I, I mean the Republicans, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> is... 
that that's something that people will do to manipulate you mm-hmm. is they'll tell you we're in a situation of such seriousness yeah. that they you must choose sides yep. right now yep. and that itself is a move that you need to be wary of right yeah you can't just accept that when people say if you don't pick a side right now your soul is in danger or you're frittering away your time on earth because that's that's a move right that's a move they're making on us and and that's i think an interesting criticism of kierkegaard which is like Hmm. Hmm. why are you always asking people to act as if their whole life is on the line good question if it isn't yeah and maybe the reason why they're doing that is they're trying to get you to fight in some stupid war or give money to their political (laughs) campaign or something like that like you get those rather kierkegaardian messages from both sides in your email which is like, hmm. it's all on the line, yep. disaster, <laughs> give us $50. Yeah, and it's either or. I mean, Kierkegaard, yeah, was absolutely yep. stressing these sort of crisis situations. Either or, you have to act in fear and trembling, and everything is hinging on this one kind of leap, this moment. But these are the techniques of, of salesmen. Yep. Yeah. To say it's either or, yep. that you have to either buy a Volvo or your family will die <laughs> that's a good way to get you to buy a volvo but it's not true yeah because you and, could take yeah. the bus right you could buy something else <laughs> yeah and it's the hysteria that's produced by this some version of this mosaic distinction that look there's the good and the evil uh this is the way jesus was talking in the gospels a lot of what jesus says as we were talking about last time is look there's going to be the saved and there's going to be the damned and you better be on the right side when the day comes all that that may sound like latter day kind of evangelical stuff, but that goes right back to the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Yeah, he was an end times preacher. Absolutely, and he wasn't the first one. He was following in a tradition of these apocalyptic prophets who were very much drawing a distinction between the good and the evil. And yet it's so fun to feel that your whole life is built around one particular bet. Oh, yeah. Well, you can feel that it's your salvation. Your salvation is at stake. There's a very interesting book called The First Messiah, which is about a precursor to Jesus. Uh, And uh, the context is that there are many historical examples across different periods in history in different places of what people, anthropologists, call crisis cults, where some population which is in dire uh, danger and under threat of extinction will latch on to a charismatic figure who offers them this kind of promise of salvation because their ancestors are going to return. Maybe they'll be risen from the dead. It's amazing how much similarities there are. And it are. happens in, in civilizations that, yeah. as far as we can tell, were not influenced by the Mediterranean religions at all. It happens in, like, right. very early Taoism. There's this book called um, The Scripture of the Great Peace. Oh, okay. It's very interesting mm-hmm. stuff. I think it's probably time for us to take a, another break, right? Let's do it. Yeah, let's take a break. This has been sort of exhilarating and terrifying all at once. Yeah. Well, we're back from the break. So what I'd like to think is sort of like, if we're not going to be so worried that other people are believing the false thing, and we're not going to be so worried that we ourselves are believing the false thing, yeah, and we're not going to worry that our salvation is constantly up for grabs are we gonna have a kind of a lukewarm life Ah. are we getting on the bus line where the last stop is nietzsche's (laughs) last man who's just kind of like 
shuffling along and getting his loaf of bread and putting some butter on it and going to sleep like well i guess i think even this isn't an either or okay i mean um it seems to me if we're really consistent pluralists will be pluralists also about this that sometimes there's plenty of room to be tolerant and i think in fact i mean my own view is that one of the great virtues of modern society is precisely the kind of openness and tolerance that's emerged in democratic societies in which people can live their lives in all kinds of ways they never would have been able to in more traditional societies. And we've got an enormous amount of individual freedom, like unprecedented in history. And that's because we can tolerate other people's choices about how to dress and how to worship, but that we don't become weak-minded, nothing really matters, anything goes, because there are plenty of situations in life, inevitably, which it will be uh -huh. an either-or uh -huh. kind of situation, a crisis situation, where you have to draw a line in the sand and take sides. And there's, that's not going away. So, in other words, the reason I don't want to throw out all my Kierkegaard books mm -hmm. is because I think that what's really valuable in Kierkegaard is the idea that some kinds of hard choices and decisions or leaps of faith in an attitude of something like fear and trembling will be inevitable. Right. Don't be a monotheist about pluralism. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. That good one. Right. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. That's so, a good bumper sticker. Now, I, now, knowing where, when to be a kind of monotheist and when to be a polytheist, this is why Bert Dreyfus, you know, I, we keep mentioning Bert Dreyfus in this podcast because we both uh, were close to him. And um, in some sense, at least I think of myself as a student of his. But he loved Homer and the polytheistic world described by Homer as he understood it. And it's a, a view he found in Moby Dick, too, with, uh, yeah. you know, all the the light of the rainbow refracted into the, you know, this plurality of gods is in Moby Dick. Bert loved that, and he also absolutely loved Kierkegaard. Mm -hmm. And I think he, he knew that he couldn't decide between the kind of monotheism of this these existential choices that are inescapable in life um, with, on the other hand, this need for openness and tolerance and so on. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think what's really disturbing about some kinds of, I think, dogmatic atheism is that the people who espouse it and again, of course, we're thinking of Sam Harris and um, Richard Dawkins. And Dan Dennett is the most sophisticated of them philosophically by far. Yeah. But they express a, the kind of contempt for traditional religion or religion generally that monotheism has for centuries been expressing for polytheistic or primary religions precisely because it's all fake and false and not mature. So it seems to me a replaying of a kind of monotheistic playbook with a lot of the same baggage that comes with it and uh, a, a lack of a recognition of how many different ways there are of conceiving of reality and life and the world. Yeah. So I was thinking about this phrase, mind-blowing, because you might think mm. that some of the things we're saying, which is like there needs to be a pluralistic, you know, pluralism is true, but it's not even true that pluralism is true because a negation of pluralism is also true. You might think that that's mind blowing. And sometimes I get in a mood where I think it's mind blowing. In a good way or bad way? Well, what I was going to say is I think it's only mind blowing if I'm emotionally committed to the identity that comes with denying that. Uh huh. Yeah. I think the feeling of anxiety or or distress that comes from having one's mind blown is really a feeling that we need these intellectual concepts to serve some emotional function in our lives mm. uh, probably dealing with trauma mm. like i think probably we've all had some sort of trauma and then there are certain ideas that we hold to very tightly because we think if we let go of them 
that feeling of powerlessness and terror that the trauma brought with it will come back. So I don't think these ideas are truly mind blowing. I think they're sort of deeply emotionally disturbing, uh, but they needn't be. That's that's my my hope. Yeah. The way I think of these things is that we just have to beware that there are a number of different dangers that yeah. we or pitfalls we can fall into. One is being dogmatic, mosaic, monotheistic, overly zealous about promoting and maybe worshiping the truth and stamping out falsehood and evil. And the other danger is to become so relaxed that we don't have any commitment to anything anymore. And we think that anything goes, which we'll never really be able to do consistently. Because again, I think Kierkegaard was right that life forces you to make hard choices and to be committed to them uh, to avoid the kind of despair. Right. Well, it, for it, it, it forces you to at least, I, I, what does it force you to do? Because you also, and he thinks most people don't step up to the plate, right? Um, mm -hmm. So it doesn't force you is not exactly right. Well, no, right, 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 exactly. It doesn't literally force you. But um, uh, I think he thinks that there is, and again, this, this expresses this sort of dichotomy that's crucial to his thinking, is that your life will be a life of faith, by which he meant, and here's what I think a very important thing to say about Kierkegaard. I don't think Kierkegaard was, strictly speaking, a theological thinker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in other words, I don't think he's got very much to say about the nature of God or the deity or the Trinity or the incarnation or any of that doctrinal stuff. In fact, he says in a number of places, Christianity is not a doctrine, mm -hmm. right? It's a way of living, but it is a way of living in faith, which means resolute commitment. Uh, now, we can. it's got some content. It's not just empty, but he does think your life will be a life of some kind of faith or it will be despair, now that is a very sharp distinction, and if you get focused on that, you may be you may be misled into thinking that your life is hanging in the balance with every decision you make. But I do think he thinks the the kind of forcing. You're right; it's not really force, but the way in which you're forced to make a choice. Uh, if you don't, you will lapse into a kind of despair right. because the only way to become a self will precisely be to make choices that define who you are. And do we agree? That we want to become a self. Oh, oh that's, well, not everybody does seem to agree that. If you put that to them, people have different views about this. Um, Galen Strawson has written interesting things about, he doesn't, he so he says, doesn't feel the need to think of himself as a sort of unified self at all. And this is just a, a idiosyncrasy that right. philosophers have imposed upon us and so right. on. I'm not so sure. And, and now, now I wonder, is he married? I don't know. <laughs> okay. But you know why I'm asking that, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if he were married, yeah. his wife might want him to think that he's a coherent self <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because what are you doing with that other person yeah oh yeah no well the person who married you was one module of yeah, me yeah now i'm i'm operating a different module of me right so yeah so it kind of it kind of does make you wonder back to our original question yeah what will the world look like if people give up on this very punitive notion that there's the true and the false and if you embrace the false you're wasting your life and those parts of you that are tempted by the false should be, you know, cut off. Like, what's the world going to be like after that? I guess the best answer I can think of is to say the world will be one in which people have to choose their battles very carefully. Mm-hmm. That not every single difference of opinion and difference of way of life and culture and values are worth fighting for or fighting over, I should say. Mm -hmm. So we we're, we were talking with Liara Rue last time about the Internet. And this, I wanted to read this quote from Osman, mm -hmm. because he says, Who can say whether we ourselves, as we reflect on monotheism, are not involved in a development that, in retrospect, will perhaps 
be represented as a leap of comparable magnitude. Well, that's a very academic sentence, but mm -hmm. I think what he means is we're involved in a leap of comparable magnitude. <laughs> yes, uh, we're yes. involved in a leap of comparable magnitude to the leap from Egyptian religion to mosaic religion. Yeah. And then he says, perhaps it is this postmodern consciousness on the threshold of a new digital age of globalism that urges us to render an account to ourselves concerning the mosaic foundations of our world. What do you think he thinks is we're on the brink of? I, I don't know this part of I, his work. I actually. think when he brings up this issue of digital globalism, mm -hmm. I think it means we have the exciting ability to form new communities and to discover that we form a we with people who we might not have thought we did. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So that you could discover that there's some people who play stringed instruments in China, <laughs> yeah. and you could yeah. meet them on the, on the internet, and you could be like, we're buddies. Yeah. And then when the US and China are trying to have a war and saying, Taylor, report to your battle station mm -hmm. because we are fighting the Chinese, <laughs> you could say, well, I'm not fighting the Chinese, yeah. at least not all of them, because my, my mandolin group is meeting tonight <laughs> and there's some Chinese people coming in on Zoom. And the, and the um, Japanese have the shamisen, which is basically a banjo. Do they really? They're very banjo-like to my ear, and they look like that, too. I wonder if we can get a shamisen esthetician on the uh, podcast. That would be great. Like, if we if we had a banjo ah. esthetician and a shamisen esthetician playing together, and then if their aesthetics diverge, that would be fascinating. That would be really fascinating. So, and this does sound like some things Liara was saying about the emergence of these new communities. It sounds like he may be thinking there may be a kind of re-emergence of something kind of polytheistic about this, that you've got lines of communication emerging that had been closed off. What made me, um, I didn't literally highlight it because I don't like writing in books, but made me mm -hmm. wish I didn't have that rule and want to highlight it, was that he thinks that it's not a coincidence that writing yes. goes with monotheism. That's right. And it kind of makes sense because how are you going to stick to your beliefs if you don't have a technology that tells you what they were yesterday? Right, <laughs> right. You, you write them down. If you don't have any such technology that tells you what they were yesterday, yeah. you can't have a monotheistic intolerant religion. You can have something else, but That's very it's not important. going to be like that. We should have said um, this from the very beginning, that these secondary religions or monotheistic religions are religions of the book. Right. It's very important that they're book-based. So with the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, yeah. the Quran. But if the internet keeps going, yeah. which who knows if it will, but if it does, then we'll have an alternative technology Maybe. for keeping track of what kind of things we care about and which kind of people we get along with and mm -hmm. what we said yesterday. But it's going to be different and it'll have a lot more bandwidth than the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, we can say, you want to know what kind of things I believe in? Look at my browser history. Yeah. But isn't there something to worry about? Sounds to also like a kind of fragmentation of meaning and a dispersal, yeah. which is going to produce fuzz and noise and chaos. And yeah. can you get a sense from those passages that you're talking about whether he's really excited and positive about this, or he's just sort of figuring that we're facing something like uncharted waters and we don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be a departure from monotheism. I think it's the second one. Uh -huh. I think it's uncharted waters. I think so, yeah. Because he wants yeah. to say monotheism had some good stuff and some bad stuff. Right. Let, let me read some more. Okay. If the violent potential of its semantic implications remains the price of monotheism, yep. in other words, if monotheism has a tendency to lead us into holy war, mm -hmm. it is also important to remember for what this price has been paid. In other words, why would we adopt this weird thing that leads us into holy war? Uh, well, here's why. Mm. Monotheism means exodus, that is, enlightenment. 
it means a liberation of mankind from the constraints of the powers of this world, mm -hmm. of the given. Mm -hmm. It means the discovery of an alternative realm of human commitment and investment beyond the traditional realms of state, society, and nature. Uh -huh. It means the discovery of the inner man and new dis dimensions of subjectivity. As a final consequence, this distinction between true and false means the distinction between God and world. That's right. So in other words, I think if you give up too much monotheism, yeah. then you're just going to let your internet service provider tell you what kind of person <laughs> to be. Yeah. And you don't want that. That's, there's so much Nietzsche in this, you know, because I think Nietzsche was really kind of going whole hog on this. The, the, the other world, this world distinction, heaven and earth and salvation and damnation. Uh, I think Osman has really made this historically real more than Nietzsche, even though Nietzsche was onto it, certainly with Christianity, that with these monotheistic religions, a new distinction is made between the transcendent realm and the earthly realm. That wasn't part of polytheistic religion. You know, the, the Greek gods are running around pulling Achilles' hair mm -hmm. and g getting in, you know, in the muck. Right. Uh, but now God is in this other realm of reality. And I'm really glad to hear him say this, that... Yeah, what you purchased with that, and this was the price of monotheism. I mean, um, that's the title of one of his books, which I recommend to people, too. It's called The Price of Monotheism. Mm. Uh, what you purchase with that is a kind of hope yeah. that this world can look very bleak and hopeless. This is what the Homeric world looked to. Someone like Simone Weil thought that the world, the Homeric world, as described in the Iliad and the Odyssey, was so totally, utterly bleak that she thought it was an indirect intimation of the truth of Christianity, which I think is kind of crazy, but there's a nugget of truth in it, which is that it's that kind of world that would maybe motivate the idea that there's hope, at least in a different realm. Right. That's something that you've got with monotheism. And you see that in people's worries. Yeah. I'm, I mean, we're we're wrapping up, but there's so many interesting things that this leads on to. Yeah. But somebody was telling me the other day that the future of entertainment is going to be there'll be cameras in your house that are looking at your biometric markers like whether your pupil is dilating or constricting and based <laughs> upon that it will tailor the television that you're watching to be something that will be exactly what you want to see oh god um and and oh god is right because you sort of feel like at that point it's not anything recognizable as art it's not anything that points the way to anything else it's just sort of like um it's like some electric feeder for animals in a factory farm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we kind of do want to have enough of the sense of transcendence right. that we could say, no, we don't want any of that. And they're like, well, what do you want? We want something different, but not that. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that requires that sense that there's a standpoint from outside the world, meaning the current world of political and socioeconomic uh, arrangements, that, that we can appeal to. And you could put it in both of these ways that Asman does. What I want a sense of uh, like a discovery of the inner person or the inner self. Uh, but that's almost just the other side of the coin of like, I want to be in touch with something alien to me and outside yeah. me that... that that uh, I can be responsive to, like it's something yeah. strange. So here to reduce this really to another kind of banal example, Let's do it. it's nice that on Spotify and iTunes and whatever, you can just choose the music you listen to. It's all totally manicured to your own tastes and preferences. Or you can order a book from Amazon, whatever book you want. Mm -hmm. But what you've lost, and this is in a microscopic way, is the wonderful experience of walking through a bookstore and randomly coming across something. You had no idea what it was, and you stumble upon it, and you find something new and strange and different that you never would have looked for if you had to initiate the search. So there's a lot of that kind of randomly come across something that was not just telegraphed by your own 
uh, a reading of your own preferences from the outset. Um, yeah. And I think that that can be generalized. I, I do think, like I said before, I think Nietzsche wanted to go whole hog on this eliminate the heaven earth distinction, uh, um, connect everything to our will to power, and we will be immersed in this pluralistic, unstructured field of possibilities. Yeah. That's when I read enough of Nietzsche that I get to that point that I think, man, give me some Kierkegaard. Uh-huh. Give me the unified, the the purity of heart is to will one thing and the kind of coherence that gives to a self that can sort of transcend itself and transcend the world as it's merely given um, or packaged and program. Maybe we need the marriage of heaven and hell. Yeah. Maybe we need the marriage of Nietzsche and Kierkegaard. Uh, that's the, well, that's been my kind of um, intellectual path for about 40 years or so, is they, they're my two heroes from the 19th century anyway. They are really incompatible in a deep way, and yet, man, I would not want to choose between them. So Right. Well, you you wouldn't need to form a marriage between two people who were completely yeah. compatible. Right. They would just be one person <laughs> yeah, and that's two right. bodies. Are there yeah. room, maybe they're roommates. Maybe Kierkegaard and Nietzsche need to learn how to get <laughs> along. Enemies, they yeah. need to learn how to get along as roommates. <laughs> in my head, that's what they are anyway. Yeah, yeah. I had a terrible, not a terrible, but a little bit of an unsettling, terrifying uh, realization a few years ago when I realized that by the time Kierkegaard or Nietzsche was my age, they had been dead for quite a while. Yes. And then I, it made me think, man, they were kind of kids. Uh-huh. Interesting. You know, I mean, I always looked to them, I looked up to them as father figures or forefathers or grandfathers, these towering figures. Then I thought, man, they died in their 40s, both of them, roughly. So you think of them as more troubled adolescents? Yeah, well, in a way, I don't want mean that that to sound patronizing, because in a way, that's the way they're viewed by a lot of philosophers that they're sort uh-huh. of they're connected to, you know, characteristically adolescent existential sort of questions. Uh, but there's a way in which that's right. What would they have been like as seventy or eighty year olds? What would have happened to them as they mm-hmm. matured and mellowed or evolved? I who knows? It's maybe there's no answer to those questions. But here's what I'm imagining. Yeah, the way to sort of live with your Kierkegaard or your and your Nietzsche or your polytheistic and monotheistic impulses is to realize that here's a case in which maybe you can have both and they don't have to be at war with each other somehow. I mean, right. maybe that's too glib or too easy, but I don't think so. I think I think life is always going to force choices that require something like a leap of faith and will involve fear and trembling. And there's all kinds of little fights that you realize you don't have to have because there's no real sharp distinction between true and false in these cases because there's a multiplicity yeah. of ways of seeing the world. Yeah. yeah. The only thing I would add to that is, and just be wary of situations where someone is trying to jam you into seeing one of them as the other. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly right. Okay. Well, that was beautiful. I recommend Jan Osman to everybody. He's a, he's a great yeah. scholar and very philosophical. There's all kinds of ways in which the sharp distinction between true and false as determining much of Western intellectual history, not only in the religions, but in the history of philosophy. He even says that Parmenides drew the distinction, you know, in a different way between the true and the false. And he calls that the Parmenidean distinction. It's sort of parallel to the Mosaic distinction. And I think that has been absolutely determinative of all of Western philosophy in very similarly problematic ways as the Mosaic distinction in the history of religion. Yes. And I highly recommend what he has to say about mummies. Which is fascinating. Okay, I'll have to take us far. I'll have to go back to that. Maybe we can do another about mummies. Oh well, we did monsters. We did monsters, and we didn't talk about mummies. And and this is terrifying questions. Terrifying questions. The reason is that mummies are not monsters. No, mummies are actually about the best fantasy you could have of life after death. But somebody said to me, a, a friend of mine, that this podcast 
uh, takes people into deep waters and then we end it abruptly in a way oh. that makes people feel not entirely safe. <laughs> okay. So I think we should think of a, a better way to end. I see. I thought we were already soothingly sort of exiting. In a calm space. Oh, okay. So I guess I'll say, um, okay, may may uh, may truth be at your right hand and, and uh, polytheism be on your left hand. That's nice. And your best self be before you. Wow. I can't I can't improve on that. So I'll say amen. Okay. Amen. Okay. Talk to you next week. Bye bye. Bye. podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen. It's produced by Amanda Eberhardt. The music and editing is by me, Taylor Carmen, and our cover art illustration is the work of Tony Millionaire. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Terrifying Questions.